0: One of the big political stories this week was the House vote to advance the impeachment inquiry in a two thirty two to one ninety six party line vote. The House has approved rules for the Trump impeachment inquiry for a long time. Republicans had been arguing about the process, saying no formal vote had taken place on the impeachment inquiry. Well, now the Democrats did just that. The rules lay out how the House Intelligence Committee, who is currently leading the investigation, will transition to public hearings. They will release a report of their findings and also release transcripts of closed-door testimony. We spoke to Mike Lillis. He's the congressional reporter at The Hill. For more on the latest step in the impeachment inquiry
1: extremely partisan vote. As you mentioned, it cut almost strictly across party lines. That was predictable. Nobody thought that Republicans were going to cross the line on this one. There was one independent, Justin Amash. We could mention him. He was a Republican until a couple months ago until he supported impeachment. And then he was kind of disowned by the party. So he's now an independent. And he did vote with the Democrats for this package. So he was a wild card in all of this. But yes, it was a strict party line vote, let's call it. The two Democrats who voted with the Republicans are in kind of heavy Trump districts and they're just looking at their reelection. That was Colin Peterson up in Minnesota and Trump won his district by more than 30 points three years ago. So he has a very tough race coming up. And then Jeff Van Drew, a freshman from New Jersey, Trump won his district by five points. So there's a lot of politics at play here. The surprising thing, I think, if anything, from this vote was the number of moderates like Jeff Van Drew, who did just the opposite and voted with Pelosi and the Democrats, because there are a lot of people in his type of district, five points, four points, three points for Trump. They're facing very tough reelections, and yet they did stick their neck out here to support impeachment. And I think the reason is that a lot of them have national security or military backgrounds, and they just have reached a tipping point where they said, we've got to do something here, and we can't allow this precedent to be set.
0: I would have to imagine that a lot of that has to do with a lot of the testimony that we've been hearing coming out from These impeachment panels, Uh, a lot of diplomats, military people also saying that they were very concerned with the phone call that the president had with the Ukrainian president. And that's also part of the problem, too. That's where Republicans were attacking the process on this, saying you're doing all this stuff behind closed doors. You're just kind of leaking out things that make the president seem worse. I'm assuming all of that plays into it.
1: Absolutely. Sure. And and not everybody, of course, is on the committees that are hearing these closed door depositions. So not everybody is in the room and has a first hand account of the witness testimony and everything that has happened. But enough of the testimony has leaked. And a lot of these are very you know respected veteran diplomats who have been in service for decades under administrations of both Democratic and Republican presidents. So their nonpartisan bona fides are fairly established and their voice goes a long way. And for them to testify and then for their testimony to leak and these stories to be written about how damning they thought that phone call was and what a threat to national security. I mean, that's the whole reason we're having this inquiry To begin with, that's the reason Pelosi, who didn't want to do this at all for months and months and months, suddenly changed her mind and said, no, we have to do it. That's the reason that they had the vote today. We have to take it to the public. And so this thing is really churning pretty quickly. It was just five weeks ago that Pelosi announced the process. And now we're moving into the public phase. Having covered Pelosi for many years, she says once a day, at least, she says public sentiment is everything. And she's paraphrasing Abraham Lincoln. So she knows that they can't do this without public support. And so part of the strategy, here is just to get these things televised, get it all out in the right. open, and hopefully it changes people's minds enough that they would put pressure on Trump's Republican defenders over there in the Senate, because, of course, nothing happens unless the Republicans in the Senate actually vote for something right. down the line.
0: And the polls for now seem to indicate that the public does support the inquiry, at least. Who knows yet about removing the president from office? Obviously, we have to finish going through the process. So the rules that they passed talk about how they would transition to public hearings And a couple of other things. What did we learn from the rules that they set forth?
1: So far, the closed-door hearings have been primarily three committees, intelligence, oversight, and foreign affairs. Now they're saying this rule specifies that they'll broaden it out just a little bit and they'll include a couple other committees. Now, having said that, it's still going to be primarily Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee covering the Ukraine stuff, but they just want to include some of the other allegations that are out there. I think that's more a political move to get some of these other members involved, some of the chairmen and women who have been working on these issues for a long time and have been kind of left on the sidelines and want a piece of this spotlight, so to speak. So there will be six committees that will be working all public hearings. It's going to do things like right now, the committees can only, each member can only uh, ask questions for five minutes and then you got to move on to the next member. So the rules today will establish, you can broaden that out so that one member can ask a longer series of questions, more like deposition style, more like a courtroom style. It will also allow staff to ask questions, which they feel is important because a lot of these staffers are prosecutors, are seasoned lawyers, whereas some of these lawmakers have no background in law or prosecution or a courtroom. So they think that that's to their advantage. It also will allow for the release of, or set up a process for how to release the transcripts from the closed door depositions that we've been having, which is, you know, you've heard the Republicans say, we don't even have access to the transcripts. The public can't see the transcripts. Nobody knows what these witnesses are saying. So this will allow for a process where the transcripts will be released. We still don't know when, and I'm sure there will be redactions, but that's part of this process is figuring out how to do all of that. And then finally, they're going to produce a final report at the end of all this. So this sets the ground rules for how to produce that report. And then, of course, we're still in the investigation stage from closed door to public. We're still investigating. This is still the inquiry, not the articles phase. But when they do move to the articles phase or if they do, but it will be the Judiciary Committee that has jurisdiction over the articles. And so this rule will also transition from the investigatory committees to judiciary, which will ultimately write the articles, vote on them and send them to the floor.
0: Mike Lillis, Congressional reporter at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Listen, thanks for having me. Anytime.
0: Another big announcement that happened early this week was that ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has died. U.S. Special Operations Forces cornered al-Baghdadi in a tunnel in a raid on his compound last weekend, after which he set off a suicide vest. Commandos on the scene were able to identify him by combining facial recognition technology and fast DNA analysis. What's happening right now is that special forces are increasingly becoming combat detectives, gathering and analyzing identity intelligence. For more on this whole thing, we spoke to Joseph Trevithick. He's the assistant editor at the war zone.
2: Well, we don't know exactly what technology they did use, but we do know that there are a number of what are effectively portable DNA analysis machines now available that are 100 pounds or less and can fit well within the size of a transport helicopter like the ones that they said they used in this raid in Syria. Again, we don't know exactly what model or what make they used, but we do know that this technology is available, which allows special operations forces on the ground to take a DNA sample from a target. They don't need to be dead. In this case, we do know that al-Baghdadi reportedly detonated a suicide vest and killed himself at the time, but they were able to then take a DNA sample from him and run it through one of these machines that they had brought with them, likely specifically for this purpose, to ensure that they could rapidly identify him on the scene. We also are now hearing reports that an informant within al-Baghdadi's inner circle had been able to pass along DNA-coded evidence. I'm hearing underwear and other blood samples taken from within the compound weeks beforehand to allow for there to be a match, because that's the other thing. Being able to test Baghdadi's DNA on the scene is impressive for sure, but you also need then something to check it against, and so this is indicative of a larger sort of what we call an intelligence-driven operation.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, just going back to we don't know, obviously, the exact machine that they might have used, but these analysis comes out in in about two hours or so compared to, as I said earlier, you know, sending it back to a lab as they did when they captured and killed bin Laden. They sent it to a military lab in Afghanistan, and it took a few weeks to actually get that true confirmation on that front. They also used some facial recognition technology. Also, apparently al-Baghdadi's head was still intact through that explosion
2: the biometric scanning equipment is also dramatically improved. And in this case, we're talking about machines that you can carry in your hands and can do basically facial recognition scans or retinal scans. And that kind of equipment is regularly used even when detaining suspected terrorists all over the world to put that into a larger database. So that again, you have that information to check against. And so this kind of biometric data is routinely collected in order to make sure you have this immense database of information so that if you ever even stumble upon someone who may be in disguise or may have changed their appearance significantly over the years, you have a way of rapidly identifying them once you've captured them in the course of some other operation, potentially in a completely different location. I mean, we know that al-Baghdadi had fled over the years, he had moved from Iraq and then into eastern Syria and then further west into Syria to where they eventually tracked him down.
0: And as you mentioned briefly earlier, too, this is an increasing part of these special operation forces to really become kind of these combat detectives. They have to gather as much evidence as they can for the current mission and future missions. There seems to be six main types of evidence that they're looking to gather at all times. I think it's called identity intelligence. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Identity intelligence is a core part now of special operations missions. The idea is that you're supposed to be conducting identity intelligence as part of any operation that you conduct. And what this means is you are collecting evidence from the scene wherever you might go. And this is biometric data, it's fingerprints, it's DNA evidence, it's facial recognition, it's trace materials, like you might think of watching an episode of CSI, you know, it's a lot less glamorous than CSI makes it out to be. But any kind of material that may create additional linkages between suspects or known terrorists and their colleagues and associates elsewhere, and then also, very importantly, collecting what's broadly referred to still as document, sort of intelligence and exploiting documents. But these days, right, it's seizing every hard drive, every computer, every cell phone, everything like that that you can find at a site and then having intelligence analysts get into that information. And again, you're looking for lists of names, you're looking for lists of locations. It's police work. It's basically the same kind of investigative tactics that have been used in domestic police work for years. It's about creating these linkages. And this is now a very essential part of how special operators work every day because that's basically the same thing you're doing. You're looking to identify the full network of terrorists and then you're looking to either kill or capture them. And so being able to gather up all of this information during these operations. And I know that they have also said that after Baghdadi died, then they proceeded to basically ransack his compound for anything that might be useful. And that makes perfect sense.
0: And the president, when he gave a statement, was praising these special forces tremendously, and very much so he should. They, you know These are great people doing this stuff on behalf of the country and all. And I know that they're all specially trained and everything, but in a situation like that, when you're in a raid and you have to get out of there pretty quickly, how much time do they devote to this when they're in the thick of a war zone or something like that?
2: We heard that they spent multiple hours on the ground, and that seems generous. It may have been because of the relatively remote location and the speed with which the initial operation was conducted. And that gave them a a fair amount of time, reportedly, to gather all this stuff up. But we do know that in the past, I mean, it can be very quick and, you know, it's never perfect. But you see pictures of individuals during training exercises doing this kind of training to do this and do it under very time-sensitive conditions. And they're stuffing stuff into trash bags. They're just stuffing stuff into trash bags. And maybe you have a certain amount of dedicated evidence bags to make it less likely that you'll contaminate information. But in terms of documents and computers and other just physical items from the site, you are just scraping all of that up and putting that into a bag and putting it onto the helicopter and going.
0: Joseph Trevithick, assistant editor at the War Zone, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Finally, the other big political story happened when freshman representative Katie Hill resigned from Congress. She was facing allegations of inappropriate sexual relationships with staffers. She was under investigation by the house ethics committee for an improper relationship with a male congressional staffer. And then she also admitted to a relationship with a female campaign staffer. This relationship was described as a thruple, a three-way relationship between her, her staffer and her husband. For more on the resignation, we spoke to John Bresnahan. He's the Congressional Bureau Chief at Politico.
3: There's two basic parts to this. One is that on October 18th, a conservative publication called Red State published a story saying that Hill had inappropriate relationship with a female campaign staffer and along with her husband. And. She and her husband are divorcing. The three of them had some kind of relationship. And then after Hill was elected to Congress, she had a inappropriate relationship with a male staffer who worked in her congressional office. And that was the husband, and they're going through an acrimonious divorce, found that out and confronted her about this. Now, there's two parts to this. One is that the ethics case involving the congressional staffer, it is a violation of House rules for a member of Congress to have a sexual relationship with any staffer. So Hill was under ethics investigation. And then the previous relationship with the campaign staffer had allegedly ended. But again, that might be an issue under California law. Now, you talked about the revenge porn issue. In the original initial story, there was an intimate photo of Hill and showed her naked, actually combing someone's hair. And that allegedly came from the husband. Right. So he never admitted that. That's the suspicion, and that seems obvious.
0: They were involved in a uh, what a lot of people were saying were reporting. A three-way couple. A lot of people yeah. threw the term around thruple just because everybody yeah. likes the makeup words. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of what was going around. And I think they even acknowledged she engaged in that relationship towards the end of yeah. her marriage. And it only lasted yeah. a very short period of time. But still, it's inappropriate to do that. And she acknowledged that as well.
3: Since she admitted that and she apologized for that relationship with the campaign staffer. She denied having a relationship with the congressional staffer and said she would cooperate with the ethics investigation. But then additional photos emerged in a British tabloid called Daily Mail. And they were very salacious photos. There was one allegedly of her naked smoking a bong. And then there was others of her kissing this campaign staffer who was alleged, she was alleged to have the relationship with. So what happened is then Hill will continue to say, well, I'm gonna stay in office. But I think by the weekend it was clear By Saturday, we were hearing talk that she may leave. And by Sunday, we knew that she was going to leave. And that she was worried about a barrage of additional photos coming out. And evidently, the husband, allegedly, he has more photos. She's worried about more photos being released. So she started to inform the Democratic leadership. But then we broke the story last night. She was resigning.
0: This all happened fairly quickly. It was all about 10 days that this uh, whole thing really developed. You were talking about that law that was passed that... A member of congress cannot have a relationship that's a rule,
3: that's a rule of the house yes. right yeah that's the house rule of, right, right and that was all so just that passed is, that it covers members themselves but there is in terms of her campaign there is a california law that covers inappropriate workplace relationships if she's the candidate she's the boss so right. can she have a sexual relationship with a staffer that may or may not be a, been a violation of california law but There is also California law on revenge porn. California and 45 other states have laws against that. So there is a number of issues here, a number of legal
0: issues here. And in the statement she released, she did kind of mention that, that, you know, the release and publication of the pictures was illegal and they're going to explore whatever legal options that they have on that front. What has been the reaction? I know Nancy Pelosi said with all of this going on, just her time there would be untenable. So she had to go and she agreed with it. What other reaction have we been seeing? (laughs)
3: Pelosi was a pretty harsh statement. I mean, Hill was a favorite of Pelosi. Pelosi had put her in leadership as the freshman representative in leadership. You know, he's, she's a fellow Californian. This is a 32-year-old woman, very dynamic, very well-spoken, very good with the press, frankly. She got a lot of good coverage. Definitely someone who represented new generations Is someone who identified as bisexual. Right even though she was married. So this was someone who was definitely out of the traditional mold of lawmakers, a young, vibrant woman lawmaker who the LGBTQ community saw her as a paragon of. This is, you know, this is a new face of America here. So Pelosi was tight with her. And then I think Pelosi, it's clear from her statement, was pretty harsh on what the allegations against her. I mean, Pelosi pushed pretty hard on the sexual harassment issues against members in both parties, male lawmakers, when that broke out in the last couple Year, so I think Pelosi took a pretty hard line. I think initially there were a number of her colleagues, especially in the freshman class, were defending Hill, seeing her as a victim, and she was, in a sense. This revenge porn issue is very, very, very troubling. And as a reporter, it's troubling to me that someone would publish these photos. I think a story about her relationships is perfectly appropriate. Did a congresswoman engage in a proper sexual relationship? Absolutely appropriate. Then you go publishing intimate photos of a member. I don't know if that's appropriate at all. I'm not sure I would have done it. But again, again, this is not the first time this has happened in members of Congress. We've seen this before. Anthony Weiner, Joe Barton, a congressman named Chris Lee from New York. This has happened before. This is the first time that we've seen this as a a strange spouse publishing something like this is a very very troubling situation
0: john bresnahan you're congressional up. bureau chief for politico thank you very much for joining us
3: thanks so much for having me
0: don't forget to join us on social media at daily dive pod on twitter and daily dive podcast on facebook leave us a comment give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in follow us on iHeartRadio radio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.